Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky speaking. Uh, as I speak, it's Friday, November 19th, 2021, and the headlines everywhere I look right now. Murder legal in the state of Wisconsin. Well, those are not the headlines, but that's the actuality. Kyle Rittenhouse got off. Murder apparently is legal in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, that's the takeaway I have from that decision, that verdict, uh, in the courthouse today. Murder is legal in the state of Wisconsin. Of course, I guess, uh, there obviously depends on who's doing the murdering and who's murdered. Uh, that may vary. A couple of left young leftists were killed. So apparently it's okay to kill young leftists in the state of Wisconsin. All right, I'm going to put my bitterness and disappointment and hurt uh, and frustration to the side uh, while I engage my distinguished guests in a conversation that probably will not touch on what went down in Wisconsin today at the courthouse in Kenosha with Kyle Rittenhouse being acquitted. But who knows where the conversation goes, the winding, the winds and turns of the conversation. So as I do with all my guests, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Well, I don't know about the distinguished, but my name is Bennett Johnson. I grew up in Edmonton, Illinois. I went to a school at HBCU, Payne College in Augusta, Georgia. After I graduated from Edmonton High School, came back to Roosevelt. and was at Roosevelt College with uh, Harold Washington, Gus Savage, and Joe Siegel, a lot of uh, Real guys who accomplished something. Caught tuberculosis, went out to California after I got out of the hospital after for a year and a half, and then came back to Chicago and got involved. I was always involved in politics, but got more involved uh, <clears throat> as we started the independent black political movement. Harold Weiss, of course, was with the regular organization, but he was very close friend of mine, so we would run together uh, during the year, and then when election time came, we would 
kind of get away for a week or so. And so that's that's how I did. And I spent a little time in Milwaukee too, in Wisconsin. So I'm familiar with that up there. All right, I have to just uh, say something about Bennett Johnson uh, that he left out of that uh, recitation of his life. Uh, it was a very concise recitation because it's a long life. He's done a lot of different things. Uh, but I, my family moved to Evanston in the years 1966 from Rhode Island. We didn't live in the Chicago area, but we lived in Rhode Island. I moved. I was a very young feller. I, moved, I went to the distinguished Nichols Junior High. Where only they only the smartest people go to Nichols Junior High. And uh, shortly at Haven. that moment, I went you went to there Haven. too. Haven. Oh, okay. Haven. <laughs> Haven School. All right, well, I'll speak a little slower, Ben. Uh, sorry, bad joke. Anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, we have that rivalry, Nichols versus Haven. Anyway, uh, shortly after my family moved to Evanston, uh, or shortly before we moved to Evanston, Evanston integrated its public schools. They used to be segregated public schools except for the high school. Uh, and uh, the leader of that effort to integrate the schools in Evanston, I'm giving you a history lesson, people, so take notes. The leader of that effort was a gentleman named Coffin. Or is it Coffin? I may be getting the G and the C mixed up. I think it's Coffin. It's the one many years ago, Bennett Johnson. And so the anti-integrationists uh, in Evanston put the campaign together to uh, elect a school board that would kick uh, Coffin out, and uh, I don't know what they wanted to do. And they put the, the pro-integration faction put together a uh, slate of candidates. Papangelis, Johnson, and Mar. I still remember it. I'm like 90 years old, and I still remember it. And that Johnson and Papangelis, Johnson and Marks, was Bennett Johnson. And I'm a young Evanstonian. I just thought Bennett Johnson was an Evanstonian guy. I just thought you were Evanston, Bennett. Fast forward, the year is 1983. I'm waiting outside of Cross Currents uh, nightclub in the city of Chicago. Harold Washington is going to show up to see a show. Uh, uh, what's it called? Council Wars, which was Aaron Freeman's uh, parody of Star Wars about the council. And all these aldermen are lined up because everybody knows Harold's coming. The limo, the mayoral limousine pulls up, outsteps Harold, and outsteps Bennett Johnson. And I'm like, what the hell is Bennett Johnson doing? In <laughs> Wait a minute. That's Evanston's Bennett Johnson. What's he doing in a limo with Harold? And that's what people told me. Ben, you got to understand, Bennett Johnson, he's got connections. He's not just that guy who ran for the school board at Evanston in 1966. So, Ben, I've been waiting for 30 years to give that introduction to you because um, you've seen it all, man. You've been everywhere, and you've been part of everything, it seems like. Um, I don't really I, – I, I do want to talk about Harold, but I just have to ask you about the Evanston thing where you ran uh, on a pro-integration slate. Are there still people who remember that slate other than political junkies like myself? Do you ever get people who say – Oh, Bennett Johnson, you're the guy that ran in 1969 or whatever it was for school board in Evanston? Well, to, uh, the facts are that Gregory Coffin was the superintendent Coffin. that they brought in. And we forced him to integrate the school. Well, they voluntarily integrated schools in 1967 after we kind of suggested from a lot of different ways. And so uh, they brought in Coffin, who was part of the Coffin family came over on the Mayflower kind of thing, and Evanston uh, has always been oriented toward the Ivy League and the, that, that kind of thing. So anyway, he he was serious, and he integrated his school, not only physically, but he brought in principals, brought in black principals. He did a lot of real positive things. 
and began to turn the whole thing around. So there was some resentment by the uh, school board, so they weren't going to renew the contract in 1970. And that's when we ran. And the thing about it, we lost, I think, by 150 votes. But about 85% on only the school board election, but 85% of all the registered voters in Evanston participated in that election. So it was a real turning point. Yeah, it was a big deal. And after that, of course, Evanston moved from being a Republican city to a Democratic city. Yeah. That was like the first, you're right, that was the first uh, sort of uh, Democratic, if you will, capital D Democratic or, or liberal uh, out, outburst of political activism. It happens, and I think it was that election, and then it was followed up, of course, with Abner Mikva uh, building the Democratic Party in Evanston. And There's something I should mention, The history though, of Evanston. That uh, when I grew up, Jews were not allowed to live in Evanston, period. And uh, we demonstrated, a demonstration led by uh, Mame Spencer, an alderman, black woman, and for open housing. And we were successful after that, uh, primarily Mikva and the group from High Park uh, began to move into Evanston. And that's how that was part of the, the actual change was at, after that election. Then uh, the Jewish, uh, uh, younger Jewish activists began becoming more involved in Evanston politics. Yeah, man, no, no, no Jews allowed. But there's always a black community in Evanston. Yeah, from the beginning. It's interesting. They allow black people but not Jews. Yeah, well, we were maids and chauffeurs and things like that, yeah. And we also were confined to a very limited area called the Fifth Ward at the time. Very much confined. And not allowed to join the Evanston Y. They had a separate YMCA in Evanston uh, for black people. That's right. Uh, what a town, Wild. Evanston. All right. Uh, uh, I could talk Evanston for a long time, but let's move on to Harold Washington. It's uh, Next week will be um, the 30, oh, God, I'm bad at math, uh, Bennett. I believe the 35th or 34th anniversary, good God, time has flown, of his death. He died right around Thanksgiving, so I think about him at every time at Thanksgiving. And Harold Washington, of course, was the great political force in Chicago uh, who symbolized just an uprising, in my humble opinion, in 1983 uh, against the political machine. And uh, I thought it was going to change Chicago forever, but unfortunately Harold died in office at the outset of his second term. Mayor Daley, two years later, was elected, and Chicago went right back to its old ways. That's my interpretation. Talk a little bit about Harold Washington, uh, the man you met way back when, uh, when you were uh, young uh, college kids at uh, Roosevelt University. Uh, could you see back then uh, they had what it takes to have a great career in politics? Well, let me make one thing clear. Although things did not go along the way that Harold wanted, it to, wanted them to after he died in 87, the machine was over with. There was no more control machine like they had before. It was a much more open city, and they did a lot of things. Uh, uh, Daly Jr. had to carry out a lot of policies that Harold put in place. But what happened to me was uh, when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was play football. And because of discrimination at Evanston High School, they didn't let for 
And although I was playing semi-pro football on Sundays at 12 years old, um, they wouldn't let us play in on the varsity. And so I was very angry about it. The, the insult was, final insult, <clears throat> was we had, when we were juniors, we won every game and were scored upon one time. Oak Park scored six points before we beat them seven to six. Then as a senior on the junior varsity, we had the same kind of season, but New Trio scored 21 points before we beat them. And they had a custom of letting the seniors on the JV sit on the bench at the high school for the last couple of games. They wouldn't let us sit on the bench. So I was, I, you couldn't make me go to any white school, although I was in the upper whatever percent of the class. And I decided to go to my church school, Payne College, Augusta, Georgia. And as a 17 year old, I made first string, all conference, all that sort of stuff. But I wasn't learning anything. So I came back and went to Roosevelt where my sister was going to school. And her boyfriend at the time was Harold Washington. So that's how I first got to know Harold. And uh, Gus Savage was uh, on the, Gus and I were on the, uh, what do you call it, the student council. And Gus was head of the, Social Activities Committee, and I helped him with that. And Joe Siegel uh, did, um, what do you call it, jam session every Wednesday. So that's how we began to get together. And Joe Siegel, of course, would go on to form uh, his jazz club, and Gus Savage would go on to be elected congressman of the 2nd Congressional District. Uh, what an illustrious crew. And, of course, Harold Washington would go on or a career in politics, state rep, state senator, uh, congressman from the first congressional, then uh, mayor of Evanston. So was how uh, Harold uh, Washington mayor of Chicago? Well, I'm sorry, mayor of Chicago. My goodness, I got Evanston in my mind. So was Harold a particularly outgoing young man back then? Uh, did he have the ability to get people to like him uh, back in well, those college days? Back in the day, see, because uh, Roosevelt was the only school in the area, maybe one in the country that had no quota such for blacks and Jews. So uh, naturally, a lot of high, highly talented and um, superior guys, well, that may be the wrong word, but anyway, anyway that's where we gathered. Harold was elected uh, president of student body, and Gus and I were uh, on the student council. And Harold always said that the way he learned uh, Robert's Rules of Order was because we kept challenging him. He represented the administration, and we, of course, were pushing against that all the time. And so that's how we got acquainted. I mean, we were adversarial on the city council, but after we go drink and talk and do whatever. And so that's how. Gus was married at the time, so Harold was a single, so that's one of the reasons why Harold and I became much closer, socially, certainly, than... Uh, Gus, although Gus and I were close together politically. So let's just think about that. Uh, Harold was allied with the administration, and uh, you were on the outside, a bit of a troublemaker. Uh, did you ever have a conversation with him back in those days uh, where he said something along the lines of, I bet it you have to understand. Uh, to get ahead in society, you have to work within the system. You can't be on the outside of the system. If you're in the outside of the system, you get nothing done. You have to be within the system to get it done. Uh, did he ever say something like that to you? No, no, not at all. The, the thing was that his father was a, a minister, 
a very successful minister. And he also was the secretary of the Third War, regular Democratic organization. So it was assumed that he was going to be the next alderman. And instead of that, they chose uh, another minister, name escapes me now. And so that was, uh, that made Harold much more pragmatic about the organization, although he was the secretary to Metcalf for a long time and, and a key guy in the Third War organization. Uh, that would be Ralph Metcalf, who also uh, became a congressman. He was the congressman before uh, Harold Washington of the 1st Congressional District. So you watched uh, Harold's evolution from being uh, a member of the Third Ward organization, Ralph Metcalf's assistant, to uh, being a state rep, to a state senator. Uh, were you surprised uh, in 1981, or excuse me, in 82, when he was drafted uh, to be the candidate to challenge Jane Byrne? Uh, did that catch you off guard? Did you think he had it in him to do it? No, you got to understand, Harold and I were running buddies every Friday uh, out of, no, 300 Fridays out of a year. Well, I'm sorry, 50 Fridays out of a year. We would uh, get together and run around and do um, various young man type things. And uh, we would, uh, he, there were three or four guys who were like, his um, cavil. Well, Metcalf had a uh, practice of having a group of folks that were his think, think tank. And Harold's think tank was much smaller. Myself, a guy named Bill North, and uh, a couple other guys, we would discuss issues periodically. Uh, uh, in 19, uh, I moved to Cabrini Green in 1957, and in 1959, uh, we decided that the Chicago League of Negro Voters reformed independent political group. We decided to run blacks for aldermen, independent in all the black wards. And uh, we were successful in the sixth ward. I was going to run in the 42nd ward. Well, I wasn't going to run at all. But uh, we had asked the head of NAACP in the north side to run for Alderman. And he agreed first and then turned us down. And then I found out later one of the reasons he turned us down was because he was part of the regular organization. <laughs> so, of the Red 42nd Ward under George Dunn at the time. Anyway, the bottom line was uh, that's how we started our political thing. And as I said, Harold was, was still working well with the regular organization. But when I ran in the 42nd Ward, he asked Metcalf to give me a hand. In fact, I, we had a meeting. And Metcalf said, I'm, I'm not going to do it now. I'm not ready to make a break. But he did let, let Harold send some guys up to help me. We got 25 plus percent of vote, which was the highest number that ever been achieved against the organization. So that's how we, and we would, again, we would spend time socially and then uh, politically, uh, he would go off on his own. I ran his campaign for, well, in 1964, they couldn't redistrict 
the, the General Assembly. And so everybody was running at large. In other words, if you ran for state representative, you had to run in all counties, not just in your district. And so Daly had to put a blue ribbon slate together. And Harold was one of the guys that he chose. And uh, I, I ran Harold's camp, not that campaign, but I ran the uh, uh, successful congressional campaign where he ran for the head of the first district because the guys that he had were not really, uh, were, were not serious. And so I went in there and helped him win. Uh, yeah, that I remember that campaign. That uh, that would have been the one. Uh, well, Metcalf died, and then the regular slated uh, Benny Stewart uh, ahead of Harold, and he was so upset over that. Uh, and I think the only uh, committeeman who voted for Harold was the guy out of the Fifth Ward. I think it was Sam Ackerman, uh, who stayed uh, loyal to Harold uh, throughout the, the time Harold was mayor. Harold yeah, was so mad, he ran in 1980. Yeah, Ackerman was our group. He was with our group, Sam Ackerman. Yeah, he was, he was with your group, yeah. We call it protest at the polls at that time. Uh, and so Harold was victorious in 19... I did not know you were the campaign manager. I did not know that, Bennett, in 1980. Uh, so, Bennett, when you ran for uh, the school board in 1970, and uh, did Harold Washington give you any advice? I mean, you were friends with him, and he, he knew what you were doing. Did he give you any... Uh, offer you any suggestions? Well, no, we... Uh, and we were sort not really because he knew I knew what I was doing. And we, you know, we worked together all the time. But uh, the Emerson thing was kind of uh, a separate sort of entity. But every time, every uh, activity in, in, in Chicago where he had a candidacy, I worked with him, yes. Including state senator, state rep, you name it, yeah. And mayor? Were you there for the mayor run? Well, the interesting thing is that uh, uh, when, well, let me be clear. Uh, they, um, Lou Palmer and uh, uh, Ed Gardner and others had decided they wanted Terrell to run. To run. And uh, he was reluctant to run for mayor. So um, I went by his, his offices on a one day in the week, like on Monday, and uh, I could see that he didn't want to run for mayor because he, he was very happy. He Harold was a, a great uh, congressman. He he read the law. He he liked doing that. He, he it was his natural bent, and so. Uh, I said, well, I think I got somebody to run. At that time, I had uh, worked with uh, Roland Burris to get him elected uh, as a uh, state, uh, what was this? Anyway, state office, can't remember which one. Um, controller. So, controller, thank you very much. So we arranged to meet with, uh, with Roland, who went by his house, and where he... <clears throat> that he bought from Mayalia Jackson. And his key guy was Ron Greer, whom I, we in fact, Roland and Ron Greer and I have worked together in minority economic development very closely. And so uh, we met with Harold and I met with him and uh, Roland was reluctant 
to commit. And so I go and ask her, how long do I have to, to decide? And Harold said, well, I'm supposed to make an announcement on Wednesday. If you call me at 12 o'clock on Wednesday, you'll be the candidate. And so when we left, though, we realized that Roman was not going to do it. And so Harold made the, the announcement and had a real, uh, what do you call it, a cadre of people there from all various entities. They really had a real consortium, a perfect thing to run. And what he had that, that time, which he didn't have before, was the black uh, John Johnson and the other guys who had some money for the first time agreed to put real money into the campaign, Bill Murray and so forth. And so uh, my, my job was to try and put together the North Side, uh, the liberal North Side, uh, especially along the lake. And so I worked with a guy named Bob Walsh and uh, John McCauley. Uh, and we put together the north side of the, the, uh, for, the for his campaign. Well, I know everybody wants to uh, take credit uh, for Harold Washington's victory in 1983. And it was primarily the result, let's be honest, uh, Bennett Johnson, uh, of, of black turnout. I think roughly uh, 99% of black voters in Chicago voted for Harold Washington. Uh, <laughs> I may be a conservative estimate. And, uh, but uh, next in line, I would have to say uh, Northside white people uh, and Puerto Ricans basically put Harold over the top because that 99%, I used to study these numbers, Bennett. I was uh, just like a freak of this stuff. Uh, and you, I, I was like figuring out if every black person in Chicago votes for Harold and everybody who's not black votes for Bernie Epton, will Harold win? And the answer was no. It wasn't enough. That just the raw mathematics of the city of Chicago required that Harold Washington get non-black votes. And God bless the Puerto Rican voters of the city of Chicago. And really, God bless the Jewish voters of the city of Chicago. They voted for Harold. And Bernie Epton was so mad, Bennett Johnson, because he was Jewish. And I interviewed him after the election. And he goes, the Jews let me down. And I'm like, Man, the Jews can't blame for everything, <laughs> good or bad. <laughs> oh my lord! But uh, you, and I, so you must have done something right on the north side of Chicago because that vote was very important. I don't think I think you'll agree with me that Harold would not have won without that vote. No, that's, that's that was the whole point. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so when Harold Washington was elected, he was immediately greeted by. Uh, United opposition from the most of the white members of the city council. Bennett Johnson, you were born and raised in the Chicago area, grew up in Evanston, spent a lot of time uh, in Chicago. Did the level of opposition that Harold Washington faced from white Chicago, did that surprise you? Well, it really wasn't white Chicago. It was Ed Doliak and Burke. And, uh, the key challenge to him at that point uh, was the issue of purchasing. They wanted to take the purchasing power away from the mayor. So uh, my responsibility when Harold was mayor was to keep together the power brokers, the, the white power brokers. And so a guy named 
<laughs> the guy was head of the uh, the uh, executive vice president of uh, Merchandise Mart. We would meet, we would, we gathered them together on a monthly or bi-monthly basis, and I would just come and kind of report to them. And the report might be the wrong word, but just you know, interact, answer their questions, so on and so on. So um, the uh, when this happened, they tried to get the purchasing power from them. Uh, we decided to have a Harold do a presentation to this group. So Ron Gidwitz, who uh, at the time had Helene uh, Curtis, the building immediately. Uh, uh, east of the uh, Merchandise Mart, we met up in his uh, in his uh, conference room on the top floor, <clears throat> and Harold did a dog and pony show. It was really great telling what he was planning to do as far as purchasing. So uh, that so that it was clear that the so-called power brokers were supportive, and Arnie Morton pulled me to the side and said. Uh, what are the chances of having the same group meet with Fajolak uh, and Burke? And so I said, okay. So we arranged to have the same group to meet with Fajolak and Burke. And they kind of stumbled through it. They weren't, they weren't, you know, incompetent, but it really wasn't a, a good presentation. And so one of the guys who was with Skidmore, Owens, and Merrill, uh, when the, after they made the presentation, he said, well, you know, Ed, uh, one reason why we uh, support Harold Washington because there's no under-the-table tax. And that ended the whole thing. <laughs> they, that, from that point on, uh, they, in other words, they had no credibility with the people who really owned the town. Yeah, the people who owned the town. Well, the people who own the town quickly uh, uh, rallied around Richard J. Uh, Richard M. Daly, Baby Daly, uh, after Harold no, died. No, no, here's, here's what no, here's what happened now. After Harold died, uh, I brought over first David Orr, who was the acting uh, mayor, and then we invited Gene uh, Sawyer. And Sawyer made a great presentation. He had a... Uh, encyclopedic knowledge of city government. He's answering all the questions. And so after the he, the meeting was over, Pat Ryan, who was Daly's, uh, the real mayor Daly's go-to guy for years, said, uh, you know, we don't have to have Daly Jr. run it. Uh, all we can back Sawyer. So in other words, the of a power broker, the many people were really behind Sawyer. They were willing to go behind Sawyer. And then the manipulation by the political folks, Mel and so forth, moved them the other way and got got somebody to run against uh, Gene. So that's how that's how that change occurred. It wasn't because the the power brokers of course didn't want to get hands dirty, so they didn't push Sawyer. Uh, but uh, they were willing to, to to let him run again. Yeah, they were, oh, that was first of all that was nice of them uh, to be willing to let him run again. I appreciate that. Uh, but 
the reality is uh, I lived through it, Bennett, as did you, and I watched. I watched uh, the power brokers of this town rally around Richard M. Daly, and furthermore, I watched that rallying around continue throughout the 90s and into the O's. No matter what he did, no matter how much corruption he perpetrated, uh, no matter what dumb ideas he came up with, they stayed loyal to him. The, down, the editorial newspaper, the editorial boards of the papers stayed loyal to him. They had a loyalty to Rich, Richard M. Daly that they never showed Harold Washington. And that was a lesson I learned about how uh, power works in the city of Chicago. Just watching the, the city, just like the powerful, as you said. Yeah, okay, maybe in 1989 they were willing to tolerate Eugene Sawyer. <laughs> that was so nice of them. Uh, and uh, But they didn't stay there. They certainly didn't support Eugene Sawyer when he ran against Daly uh, in, for, in 1989. That is for certain. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So Harold Washington, uh, when he died, uh, any thoughts about that day and your memories of that day? Well, I had been meeting with, uh, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but the idea was to get more money and more support from the white, community, white corporate community behind Harold. And we were at a restaurant at 53 with Jackson when I heard Harold had gone had a heart attack. So that's how I found out about it. Did you go to the hospital? Were you, uh, did you rush no. over to Northwestern Hospital? No, uh, see, there was a guy named George Romas, a Greek uh, restaurateur, who was a real Harold fan, and uh, he also a close friend of mine. And he brought Harold a, a, a scale for him to weigh because Harold and I always were the same weight, uh, although I was, you know, a few inches taller than me. And uh, he ballooned to 285, and he, he was, he did, I stopped smoking, he didn't stop smoking, I uh, had stopped drinking by the time, yeah, and in other words, he was continuing along the same uh, merry path that, that we had started years ago, whereas I had moved back and stopped smoking and stopped drinking. Bennett, you said something, before we leave uh, the subject of Harold and get over to uh, Muhammad Ali, you said something in passing, and I wrote it down, and I want to follow up on it. Uh, you said that he enjoyed being a congressman. Oh, yeah. That uh, he was reluctant to give up that position because he enjoyed it, and, and I completely agree with you on that. Uh, but he did give it up. He did become mayor. In your opinion, did Harold Washington enjoy being mayor of Chicago? Oh, yeah, yeah, he, sure. Uh, I, I remember <laughs> I brought him a book uh, called Black Capitalism, Written by can't think of the guy's name, a very wealthy white uh, industrialist, and uh, I have I have, I had written the uh, epilogue. I'd written a chapter in the book, small section, I should say. And so I went over to his department, gave him the book, and he was very stinging, very very um, almost euphorically. That he, that he was mayor of the city of Chicago. You know, just as an aside, we weren't really talking about anything. Just made that statement. So he enjoyed doing it. 
uh, I know he gave up a lot to become mayor, and ultimately, like you said, the pressure uh, of it, in my humble opinion, uh, contributed to uh, the help, the the weight gain, and the uh, ability to, to cut off smoking cigarettes, as you pointed out. So it ultimately led to his demise. But it uh, it is encouraging to hear that at least that he enjoyed being in that most powerful position. Oh yeah. All right, let's move over to somebody else that you knew in your life, Muhammad Ali. This is a mini obsession of mine, as I shared with you once. I wrote about this in The Reader many times. Uh, In 1976, excuse me, 1996, I was watching the Olympic Games at the opening ceremony, uh, and uh, uh, Harold Washington, Muhammad Ali lit the uh, torch, lit lit the, the flame, had the torch in his hand, he lit it, the crowd went crazy, and I remember Bob Costas, who was the, uh, the NBC announcer, talking about how Muhammad Ali, when he was young Cassius Clay in 1960, won a gold medal in Rome. Uh, but uh, he lost that gold medal, so now they're going to replace it as a sign of respect to him because he lost his gold medal. And then he said there's an apocryphal story that he threw the medal away in a protest, but that's just apocryphal story, meaning we do not know the origins of that story. And I have to tell you, Bennett, I was very offended by that because as a kid growing up in Evanston, I loved uh, Muhammad Ali and I had read his autobiography, The Greatest. And in The Greatest, he has like 30 pages about throwing the medal away in protest after he came back from Rome in 1960. So it wasn't apocryphal. We knew the source. The source was Muhammad Ali. It was his story. So who the hell was Bob Costas to say that it was an apocryphal story? And uh, furthermore, the the ghostwriter, not really a ghostwriter, but the guy who wrote the book, I mean, Muhammad Ali didn't write his autobiography. He told it to Richard Durham who, in my opinion, was a Chicago legend who doesn't get the credit he deserved. They should at least name a library after him or something. Great writer in Chicago, wrote the book, one of my favorite sports books of the 70s, and Ben and I'm a huge sports fan. I still have my copy of that book that I bought in 1976 or whenever. So I was so upset, and I still am to this day. And people go, Ben, get over it. Just get over it already. And I'm not getting over it, Bennett Johnson. (laughs) Muhammad Ali is the source of that story, and I defy anyone to show me where he ever retracted that story. Now, maybe true or not, I do not know. I was not on that bridge in 1960 when he threw the medal off into the Ohio River. I do know this. He's never retracted it. I wrote that in the reader again, and you responded by saying you knew Richard Durham and you knew Muhammad Ali. So you take it away from here, Bennett. Is, in your humble opinion, that story true? It is true without a doubt. Uh, Durham was, uh, well, one of one of the uh, entities that we had a relationship with during our activist growth activist period was the uh, United Packing House workers, and Durham worked for the Packing House. In fact, uh, several of our guys worked for the Packing House at different times. Rosie Simpson worked there, uh, Herman Gilbert worked there, so forth. Anyway, the point is <clears throat> that Durham was the, uh, can't think of his title, but he was he was a key PR guy, the communications guy. And Charlie Hayes was the, 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 uh, the uh, 
often on 45th Street. And Russell Lasley was the guy who was generally in charge downtown along with, uh, uh, I don't know why I can't think of the name. Anyway, the point is that uh, Durham wrote uh, scripts for radio programs like I Love the Mystery and several other very popular pro radio programs at the time. He also wrote for a television program that I still can't think of the name of that was very popular about, uh, just can't think of. In other words, he was a professional writer, not only uh, effective, but successful, professionally, economically. And then he developed a relationship with uh, Herbert Muhammad, the son of Elijah Muhammad. And that's how he began to put together the newspaper form. He put, he ran the newspaper initially. He tried to get Gus to function as a publisher and Gus agreed to do it, Gus Savage. And then uh, Gus tried to organize a union, so that was the end of that. As <laughs> 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 you can imagine. And, uh, but a lot of, a lot of talented people yeah. Came through uh, Durham when Durham finally just took it over. Uh, uh, Leon Forrest, who ended up being a professor in Northwestern. Um, I can't think of all the guys off the top of my head. Uh, Rose Jennings, who worked for a long time with uh, Playboy and uh, Executive Capacity. A lot of very uh, talented writers came through the Muhammad Speak. And, uh, so, were you aware of that story uh, that is that Richard Durham and Muhammad Ali wrote uh, in sure. the Greatest about the? Th- yeah, absolutely, sure. And and did you ever have a conversation with Richard Durham about it? Did you ever say to him, Richard, is that is that story for real? No, because it makes the made sense. That's the way Ali would do. He's that he's that kind of person. If he discussed with someone, he'd let you know. In fact, uh, one of my best stories when we were. Ali and I were traveling in uh, Iran and Iraq, and uh, uh, there was a young guy who, relatively young guy, wanted to get Ali's uh, autograph. And we always had minders, uh, four or five minders. And one of the minders pushed the guy away and wouldn't let him, wouldn't let him get close to Ali. Ali got mad at hell and grabbed the guy who had been pushed away and signed the autograph. That's the kind of guy. He uh, and uh, so what do you attribute to uh, the reaction against that particular anecdote? Why did a guy like Bob Costas, why do so many people feel compelled uh, to say either the origins of the story are unknown or it's not true? Well, the, we have to understand racism. Racism is based upon, it's not just uh, the normal kind of discrimination. But there are certain traditions, certain institutions, certain things that have real value to the white community. And the fact that a black guy, because he was mad, would throw something that's so symbolic, so important from an institutional point of view into the water, just a concept they can't accept, into the river. And so they, instead of accepting it, they just make up an alternative history to deny that. 
that happened. Although he said it, he never denied it. Uh, it's written in, in black and white. And that's the way it goes. Wow. It's pretty deep. Well, I have to tell you that uh, I'll repeat what I said. I've had conversations. I told you this before we went on the air. I've had conversations with people who've written books about Muhammad Ali. And they'll tell me, Ben, you know, that story's not true. They'll look at me like, like I'm crazy. They go, Ben, you know, that story's not true. And uh, I said, well, I don't know if it's true or not. I do know this, that Muhammad Ali is the source of the story, and I've never heard or seen any evidence that he's ever retracted it. And they say to me, well, Ben, no, I happen to know that it's not true. <laughs> like, I'm like, how do you know? The man said it happened. He never retracted it, but you're telling me you know. And then they always say, Bennett, I think I saw an article once where he retracted it. I go, find me that article and send it to me. And they still haven't done it, Bennett Johnson. <laughs> they never will. <laughs> no, I, I think... Um, to indicate how his attitude was towards certain things. Uh, of course, as you know, he was a Muslim. And one day we were at uh, uh, up in Berrien Springs at his house, and he was reading the Bible or going through the Bible, and he was just talking about all these contradictions and all the inconsistencies in the Christian Bible. And he said, well, I'm going to, uh, I want to go on a tour explaining all the contradictions and the inconsistencies in the Christian Bible, in the Holy Bible. And I had to say, no, you're not going to do that because that would destroy your, uh, your, I mean, you could just think what would happen with that. So he didn't do it. But the point I'm trying to make is that that was his attitude toward so-called uh, white institutions. Yeah, that would that would have. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he had done that. If they'd be uh, putting together these uh, uh, odes to Muhammad Ali, like I just watched one on Channel Eleven, an ode to Muhammad Ali. By the way, the guy who made that, uh, Ken Burns, has got to point this out. I just have to share this with you, uh, Bennett. Uh, Ken Burns and his wife, they or his daughter, put together this uh, fabulous tribute to Muhammad Ali. I urge everybody to watch it because it's got vintage, excellent footage of Muhammad Ali and Cassius Clay, you know, when he was Cassius Clay, down through the years. Great, I don't know if you're a fight fan, Bennett, but great fight, great boxing sequence. I'm a big boxing fan, great boxing sequences. So it was well worth watching. <laughs> then we get to the medal. I'm sorry, Bennett, white people cannot deal with this medal. So Ken Burns doesn't even mention, he mentions he won the medal, but he doesn't mention that he through it or what happened to it. And so I read it. I'm like, well, this is curious. He doesn't even mention it. And so I read an interview, and Ken Burns says, oh, yeah. <laughs> he threw the, He didn't throw the medal away. That's a made-up story. I'm like, here we go again. And he goes, it just, well, the interviewer said, well, why don't you put it in the movie? He goes, well, you know, I had so much stuff in the movie, I couldn't fit it in. And I'm like, God damn. Even the guy who loves Muhammad Ali, that's too much. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, one of the things that I was unhappy with about the uh, movie, the one you're referencing, is that they, they did not talk about his trip to Iran and Iraq. We went over there to, uh, we, uh, he was invited as a guest of, what do you call it, of the, of the 
state, the state in Iran invited him. But as before we left, there were several people that approached us and talked about the need to get the prisoners released, exchange of prisoners between Iran and Iraq. And so we agreed to do that. And uh, that's why we went from Iran to Iraq uh, to negotiate with both groups. And uh, the Iraqis agreed to do it and gave us a list of prisoners. I still have that somewhere around here. And uh, so we knew that we wouldn't have a problem with Iran. And Iran, uh, you know, we'd, they were duplicitous and didn't do it. So uh, he, he was, that was, that was what he wanted to do. That's what, what he wanted to be remembered by. And it didn't happen. But it should have been included in the, in the movie. Yeah. All right, uh, Bennett Johnson, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me and uh, figuring out the technology of how to uh, make this work. It's a delight talking to you. Uh, and we're going to have to bring you back in the regular show. Uh, every Wednesday, Monroe Anderson joins me, and we, uh, we talk politics, we talk old stuff, we talk new stuff. And I think you would really fit into one of those uh, conversations with Monroe, and I know you know him from back in the day. Uh, right. And so uh, let's bring you back on this show, all right? Okay. Thank you for bringing me this time, Ben. Oh, where, where did you live at Stanley when you were in Everson? Well, uh, I lived, uh, we sold the house uh, when my parents had passed, Bennett. Uh, we lived right in Chicago and Maine, uh, right near Chicago and Maine uh, on Hinman. And uh, oh, I lived really? there from yeah, 1966, and that's why I went to Nichols uh, until I left uh, Evanston High School in 1973. And I haven't lived in Evanston since, but I consider it my hometown. I go there all the time. Still go to yeah. the downtown Evanston and the, the library, et cetera, and so forth. Yeah, I used to live at 704. Say I that again? Live, I used to live at 704 Hinman. Oh, we were neighbors. Yeah. I'll be damned. Yeah. Uh, where do you, you live in Evanston now? I live Still on live Watson. Evanston or are you in Chicago? Watson and, uh, uh, and, um, Okay. All right. Very good. Enough Evanston geography for our listeners. Uh, Bennett Johnson, Johnson, thank you so much. Uh, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Bye.